Hi there. My name's Jack Tudor, and I'm the author of a new book titled Storm, Static, Sleep, A Pathway Through Post-Rock. To my knowledge, it's the first book to be dedicated to the story of post-rock music. It's coming out on November 30th through Function Books, which is the publishing arm of Function Records. And you can find out more information at stormstaticsleep.com and by keeping up to date with our Facebook and Twitter pages. So throughout this series of podcasts, I'm essentially going to be taking you through the process that I went through in researching and writing this book. So you'll hear audio interviews conducted with various musicians and record label founders, as well as hearing some of the music that decorates the post-rock narrative. So this first episode centers on musician David Grubbs, who grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and now lives in Brooklyn. He's previously been in bands, including Bastro and Gasta del Sol, as well as playing in the likes of the Red Crayola and Bitch Magnet. And currently he performs under his own name and often in collaborations with musicians such as Andrea Belfi and Stefano Pilia. David makes for a great introduction to this series of podcasts, partly because I spoke to him very early on in the research process, back when I was feeling thoroughly daunted by the whole project. So in the first half of the interview, David joins me in unpicking the term post-rock and some of the problems with it, as well as exploring the roots of David's own rejection of rock conventions as a young teenager. So firstly, I want to play you a piece of music by David from his 2013 solo album, The Plain Where the Palace Stood, which was released on Drag City. This one's called Ornamental Hermit. A view of the mesa, a view of the morning, Literally knackered Who 
I guess the first question I wanted to ask is um, do you feel any affiliation with this term post-rock or see it to have any sort of practical application? Yeah, sure, I, I do. Uh, I mean, I, I guess you asked it in two parts and I, I, I see the practical application more than I feel an affinity with it. I remember reading the Simon Reynolds article when it came out and it made, it made perfect sense as a description of a, a tendency of a kind of music that was uh, uh, primarily like a post-hardcore, post-punk music where um, all different kinds of influences had creeped in. The role the recording studio was more important. Uh, band membership was more fluid. Um, and, uh, you know, instrumental music rather than songs um, were, were kind of getting the upper hand. So, uh, and also the, you know, the use of electronics within groups that primarily had just uh, stuck to a more familiar rock format of guitar-based drums. So all of those descriptions seemed absolutely accurate to me. And yet, um, when, when crystallized as, as, as a term like post-rock, it wasn't something that you could really get behind um, in, in the same way that uh, when I was 17 or 18 years old, and the term hardcore to me meant American hardcore punk scene of Black Flag and Minor Threat. That was something that I could get behind. <laughs> but I will, you know, I will say just in terms of my own experience, and this is definitely um, from when I really got interested in what was going on, you know, at that moment in, you know, in music as a contemporary thing. When I was growing up, I was really, I, I've been obsessed with rock music since I was a kid, and I was really into the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Who and things like that. Um, until I was about 12 or 13 years old, uh, I'd been reading Rolling Stone magazine, so just absolutely mainstream media, music media in the, in the United States. And it suddenly occurred to me that all of this stuff, like the Who and the Rolling Stones, when, when they would come through Louisville, Kentucky, uh, in the early eighties, suddenly these people are in their forties or their fifties. They, you know, they looked as old as the Hills and sure. I, I loved, you know, the first five or six years of recordings by the who, but uh, you know, like that wasn't my generation. Uh, so I got really interested in Rolling Stone cause it was a moment of, of uh, post punk. So I, I remember, uh, really being absolutely fascinated and mystified by an interview with John Lydon from Public Image Limited, in which um, his point was that uh, entertainment really was the, the enemy, that, uh, you know, that, or that, that rock music was the enemy, and that he felt that the Sex Pistols hadn't uh, sufficiently uh, attacked or deconstructed rock music uh, in its more familiar forms. And, uh, yeah, that made a lot of sense to me. So, I mean, the, the post in post-rock, um, I've, I've always sort of um, felt very much at home with because 
by the time I started playing punk music in 1981 and 1982, it really was already post-punk, and there was nothing, there was nothing purist about it. Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I like musics when they enter a post-phase and uh, fray considerably at the seams and, uh, um, you know, kind of ex- expand wildly and in a more inter- uh, experimental fashion. Fantastic. I mean, I haven't. You're one of the first people I've spoken to about this um, from a musician's perspective, and uh, the first person I went to was was Simon. Um, given my age as well, I feel more of an affinity or more of an understanding, really, of of the, the kind of latter understanding where it, where it kind of latched onto a sound. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts as to why that transition happened i mean you know i guess it's really difficult for a term like post-rock to exist as a an ideology without like a sound to, to latch on to in terms of you know music criticism and and, and and the like you know it's difficult for people to to really grasp that as a as an idea or a movement if you know all these bands sound so different but i wondered if you had any thoughts on that well i i mean even beyond the disparity of musical styles there was no uh moment uh of it being a fashion or an ideology or any anything like that i mean for me punk and post-punk and hardcore were appealing because they really were all encompassing that so i was in a punk band but i was also a fanzine editor i dressed in a way that um you know seemed seemed to uh reference the first wave of of british punk you know it it was a uh, and it was also much more of a DIY ideology. Most of the people who are identified with post-punk went, went through that time and place and experience. And that was, uh, you know, an incredibly formative uh, moment, that, that American punk moment that really left its stamp on people. So when, when people started playing uh, a slightly more studio-based extended duration, you know, like more decentered and in some, and in many cases more ambient kind of music. Um, it was, it was about an interest in the music rather than starting a fanzine dedicated to it or like dressing in any particular way. Um, it didn't, it didn't come with a, a style or even much of an ideology, which is why I think that it doesn't really make sense to speak of it as a movement. I mean, you, I think that you can, speak of it as like a uh, a tendency in music at a, at a certain period. And also, I think that it's important that, to say that those people, in in my experience, no, no matter how uh, spacey or electronic or uh, remix-centered a lot of the music was, almost everybody who played it had gone through, uh, you know, five or ten years before playing in... Uh, hardcore punk bands and and that uh that kind of aggressive energy and like uh you know fast exuberant music had had left its mark in that people wanted to do something that was very different from that you know in in the the same way that public image uh was a much cooler you know verging on colder uh reaction against the like the very straightforward, supercharged rock of the Sex Pistols, 
I, I think that that uh, in in almost all of the bands that you would describe as post rock, people went through a similar kind of like uh, I'm I'm missing the uh, uh, astronomical uh, metaphor here, but you know like <laughs> this the supernova whatever body in space that that superheats and and then you know becomes like a very cold black hole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically what a lot of people had gone through. Absolutely. I, I mean, that's. I think that was the the most difficult thing for for me to grasp to begin with going into this is the fact that you had these uh, um, bands and groups called post rock music who, uh, on one hand, were creating something that was termed post rock as going beyond post rock music, but must have had at least at some point some affinity with rock music in order for that to be. Uh, still within the term anyway um yeah and there's that strange yeah, like, tension there you know um yeah it's a, yeah i mean it's really a dialectical flipping but the uh but the affinity before i mean to put a more fine point on it wasn't even so much rock music like i never really played in rock bands even as a kid because i i got into punk early on which i thought of as a very oppositional uh, style and a very oppositional kind of music, uh, you know, for which rock music, uh, you know, rock music as an institution, you know, like the who singing long live rock. Um, that was absolutely like the enemy. <laughs> so even when I was, even when I was 13 or 14 years old, I, I really, I really thought that rock music in, in the way that it was sort of institutionalized as like classic rock, in 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 the way that in the United States jazz gets institutionalized as like America's classical music, that um, you know that 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 lending of a kind of legitimacy and uh, it, you know and tradition to to rock music was uh, offensive. <laughs> you know, like that 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 was that was something to like you know, start a fanzine to, you know, to rail against or to start a band to rail against. I don't know. In, 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 in that way, I mean, it's very unspecific to say this, but uh, most of the stuff that would have been, uh, you know, it's frequently identified as post-rock is uh, to me more like post-punk, uh, you know, a wave or a generation or so later. Yeah. Uh, it's post-punk post, post in the 1990s or it's post-hardcore.
So that was Bastro with the track Jefferson in Drag from their 1990 album Sing the Troubled Beast. So perhaps the most famous configuration of that band had David Grubbs on guitar and vocals, while on drums you had John McIntyre and on bass you had Bundy K. Brown. Now both John and Bundy would later go on to become founding members of Tortoise, no less. But in the early 90s, Bastro underwent something that David calls a unilateral disarmament, whereby distortion was stripped away and negative space was introduced into their sound, which eventually culminated in a new band called Gastadel Soul. Now, the band was founded with all the same personnel as Bastro, but they had a completely refreshed relationship with sound and space. So they used a lot of studio processing, a lot of field recordings, extended silences, and all of this became even more important when Bundy and John left the band to leave Gaster as a duo consisting of David Grubbs and a new guitarist and improviser called Jim O'Rourke. So in the next part of this interview, David explains how Bastro became Gastadel Soul. In terms of the transition from, say, Bastro to Gastadel Soul, you talk about a um, unilateral disarmament. Yes. Which is a wicked phrase. Was, it's still the best, best term for me, you know, that it really was a disarmament. <laughs> so do you think um, part of that as well is, is almost furthering this departure from perhaps the hallmarks of, of rock music. I know you say you, didn't, you never played in rock bands, but um, mm-hmm. do you think part of that transition may have been shedding any sort of element of rock that was, was present in Bastro? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I, you know, with Gastrodol Soul, I, it really came from feeling that Bastro had uh, gotten good at the one thing that it did, which was playing kind of high-impact trio style post-punk uh and uh and yet uh i felt like we could only do it at a maximum volume and that we were we had to play in certain size rooms on certain kinds of pas and i think the revelation for me was seeing a lot of free improvised music when i moved to chicago um a, a lot of what you know might be called contemporary classical music and and just uh getting interested in, in uh, unamplified or only marginally amplified experimental music on acoustic instruments. That, that became really interesting to me. I'd, I'd never owned a steel string acoustic guitar before Gastrodal Soul started. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was just a very, suddenly, sonically, a very different relationship to playing music. What's interesting is the fact that you started Gastrodal Soul with the same personnel that had been Bastro. I mean, how easy was it to, to initiate change within three people who'd, who'd maybe become accustomed to do, doing the music of Bastro? Um, you know, when mm-hmm. it's the three of you getting back in a room together, how, how, do you, how did you make that Gaston del Sol and, and not just Bastro again? I think one, one of the things was that John and Bundy had become involved with Tortoise right around that time. Sure. Um, which was something that looked like it would be uh, make it, making quite a claim on their time. Uh, I, I had gone back to school and, w- and was starting a graduate degree, so I wouldn't be touring that much. Um, and I th- think that we did two six-week-long tours where we kind of felt like 
we did what we did well, and we did it well without a lot of conversation and, and with next to no conflict. I, th- I think that we were interested in trying some. I, I don't know. I mean, I will say, like, one, one thing that maybe explains it is that uh, prior to that point, Astro had always had a rehearsal space. You have to play through large amplifiers. You have to play, you know, at, at a certain kind of volume. And when it became Castro del Sol, at first it was just me and Bundy writing material in our living room. I mean, we were, we were roommates at the time. Uh, and I was playing acoustic guitar. And it just felt like I had this idea that it seemed like it was on much more of a human scale. Um, where Bastro suddenly seemed, you know, to to be on steroids, or you know, a, a, you know that it only operated at this kind of uh, monster scale. Sure. No, I felt like Bastro had no dialogue with place, whereas Gaster del Sol, right off the bat, uh, I mean, sometimes it was two people, sometimes it was three people. You know, occasionally there was a big gig, and maybe we could round up six or seven people to play, you know, that it, that it was very specific to where we were playing and, you know, what the occasion of playing was. So, so with your material, I mean, did Gaston del Sol ever immerse in improvisation to any extent? Um, you know, it was always uh, improvisation within written structures and within written songs. Uh, Jim O'Rourke is, a, is an amazing improviser and absolutely comfortable, world-class improviser, you know, able to just kind of like improvise using uh, an acoustic guitar or a trash can. You know, he, uh, he can find something to uh, contribute musically with almost any uh, tool. And yeah, no, I felt like I learned enormously from him. I had thought that in improvising that I, uh, I'm a guitar player and I'm a pianist and I need to learn to be a good improvising pianist or I need to be a, a learn to be a good improvising guitarist. And, I, and uh, uh, Jim had an absolutely different kind of attitude, you know, that improvisation is so much more about the, the process and the, you know, the, the ways in which people play together in real time rather than being a master of one's instrument, even though he was a complete master of his, <laughs> his instrument. You know, I, I, but I think that extremely healthy attitude that he had towards improvisation did come from the fact that he really had, to a certain extent, mastered his instrument. You know, the, and then he was free to, to improvise with the garbage can. <laughs> In fact, that feels reminiscent. I read an interview earlier today that you had with see Spencer year about oh, yeah. the, the credentials that you know you have a, mu- a musician almost um, entitling then that reduction back to something as you say as simple as banging a trash can around yeah I'm still I'm still thinking about that interview with Spencer I'm still imagining throwing my guitar amp down the stairs I haven't done it yet you haven't <laughs> it's gonna ask yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get back to me when you do because uh, um, do you think you'll ever reach a point where you'll then get to a point where you, you just do pure uh, improvisation, like in terms of I, I I don't know if you see that as kind of maximizing yeah, the way you can respond and you know dialogue with with place and time. Yeah, I mean it it seems it seems like a good idea, and it seems like it should be a 
goal. And it seems like, uh, you know, the, the, the idea to be, uh, free enough, um, that that's, yeah, the, the, you know, a kind of dream of showing up with your instrument or showing up without your instrument and being ready to go. Some, I mean, sometimes you're in situations where that does happen and sometimes it seems like a dream. And, and yet, uh, I I like to write music. I, I like to, to complete, uh, pieces of composed music. Uh, I like to write lyrics and texts. Um, I, I like to, to have a second stab at taking something that I've recorded and rearrange it totally differently for a live performance. So, um, w- whereas there's something that's deeply seductive about the, the dream of, of a music that never repeats, i.e. improvisation, um, I, th- I think, in in point of practice, I I'm constitutionally more drawn to writing music, but writing music that's open enough to be, uh, you know, uh, constituted differently every time it's performed. What kind of place did recomposing hold within, say, the the music of Gaston del Sol? And would it be fair to say that that became more prominent as you made your music? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and the, I mean, the key to it, uh, was Jim being an excellent engineer and slowly building a a studio in his home, you know, in, in his apartment, um, which gave us what felt like all the time in the world. It was such a, a huge difference from, uh, even Bastro or, you know, squirrel bait, my, my first years of playing where, um, studios seemed incredibly expensive, even if they were cheap, because nobody had any money. And, uh, you know, like you practice, 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 and then, you, you know, you just tried to nail it as well as you possibly could as, as the complete performance in the, in the studio. Um, you know, I was watching the Slint documentary a couple of months ago, and I remembered this from the time, but had, I guess I had forgotten it. That, uh, that they really nailed Spiderland in about two days of tracking, maybe two and a half days of tracking. Yeah. Um, and now, I mean, just because people own the, the means of production, uh, you know, so many people are recording to, um, like, their home setups using, using Pro Tools or, or similar software, um, uh, that people have the quote-unquote luxury to, you know, to spend months and years uh tweaking things writing music in the studio but uh but clearly i mean there's something to be said about uh working under a time constraint i think jim and i worked under a time constraint in that we were always ready to move on to the next thing so you know there was no danger of us spending 15 years making an album because you know we wanted to play on the next red crayola record or you know like that we were 25 years old and like there was lots of stuff to do that's an interesting point you made about uh people being able to use the studio a lot more so mm-hmm. do you reckon then that was maybe part of the reason that this whole you know studio as instrument thing became a a bigger deal maybe in that time uh absolutely yeah suddenly people could afford to to use the recording studio like a musical instrument I mean, but before it was only Brian Eno. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, who could afford to do that? And that was, I guess, only because at a certain point he owned his own, uh, you know, studio and recording equipment. 
Yeah. And in fact, as well, the, you, you mentioned earlier how you brought Grass to Del Sol down to a more human scale. Um, yes. But then with the, you know, the studio as instrument, when I listen to some of these records and, and you know, maybe some of your own, and uh, there's almost something dehumanizing at, at then having the studio as um, uh, having the presence of the studio in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things can be no, shifted I, I, around. I, and... Sure, sure. No, I, 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 I absolutely hear that. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a different kind of monster than the, the monster that was Bastro performing live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's more of a post-humanization than a dehumanization, I guess. So that was David Grubbs in conversation with me late last year. And I just want to end the podcast by playing you an example of this post-humanization process that took place in the transition to Gaster del Sol. So this is a piece called Sea Uncertain from Gaster's album Upgrade and Afterlife. And one of my favorite things about the transition from Bastro to Gaster del Sol is that for all of the differences in terms of instrumentation and the increased spatial sensitivity, the music is still founded upon this crooked, dissonant tonality that existed throughout the career of Bastro as well. So thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon with another podcast. And in the meantime, feel free to get in touch via the Storm Static Sleep Facebook and Twitter pages. Take care. See you soon.